having that public education that's accessible to anybody, no matter your demographic, your economic status, your neighborhood, having a good program that you don't have to pay thousands of dollars for because you have professional parents, that is the equalizer, right? That is how we bring everybody up. And until we bring everybody up, none of us are really excelling, right? Like you're always gonna have the separation and that's not good for society. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash Forgotten Corner Pod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. I'm Scott Schmidt here alongside my co-host, Jeremy Appel. How are you doing, buddy? Doing pretty well. I noticed I'm I'm not your good friend anymore. Just a co-host to you. I apologize. Like I, I was al- already thinking. Like I wonder if people will tell that this is the third take because I was like laughing as I said all that to start, anyways. And I didn't say that we're super proud to be part of the Harbinger Media Network with amazing podcasts such as Give Him Some Jeremy. Off Court. Yep. Kino Lefter. And 49th Parahel. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, Rob Rousseau. Is, yeah. Uh, Not that they aren't. They're all good. Yeah. Yeah, we're kind of lucky to be on it. It's a, it's, a, it's a socialist network, so obviously <laughs> right. every podcast is of equal worth. <laughs> on Correct. the network. Correct. Not, not right, right, right. Um, how's your week? Because I've had an interesting last day anyways. I'm up a badger. Yeah, you uh, you gonna tell us about that? Um, I I can tell you is I got a uh, blender the other day, so I've been on a big smoothie kick. I'm a smoothie guy now. Um, I mean, in some ways, I would have rather had a blender show up in my life, but like, you some you just don't you know if you wake you don't wake up every day thinking like I'm gonna get a badger today, but that's what happened to me. Well, I didn't get to wake up, but badger blender, it's all the same. Yeah. So, well, so I work evenings and uh, there's a woman that comes in to do some custodian work at the office and we have a pretty good relationship. We chat all the time. Mm -hmm. And I also have like built up over like 10 years, all these like different figurines on my desk that people just give to me, whether it's like, I've got like everything from Jesus to the Grim Reaper to like a stuffed horse now, right? Like the just shows up in my life. And she came over and brought me this like little rubber lizard, like, I don't know, four inches long. It was cool. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Thank you. And then about a half an hour later, I was walking to the bathroom and I saw her in the hallway and she's like, I have a stuffed lizard you could have too. And I was like, well, obviously I'll stick it beside the stuffed horse that I have because that'll be great. And so yesterday I was sitting at my desk and she shows up at work. She always gets there about like 4.30. She walks in the door and she's carrying a goddamn like taxidermy fucking iguana thing that's like four feet long and like nasty, like super gross. And she's like, here's your stuffed lizard. And I'm like, my brain's like, that is not the kind of stuff that I was thinking about. And then we got talking and she's like, well, I have a badger too. Do you, do you want the badger? And I was like, I want the badger a whole lot more than I want this lizard. And so I went home for dinner. And when I came back, she's walking in the door with the stuffed badger, who is now like my best fucking friend in the world. And he sits beside me right here. Mo, have you seen the badger? People can't see it, but does he have a name? Well, we could name him on the show, but I don't let's know. Let's do it. Let's do it right here. Let's. I let's already do it live. like. I already pre-assumed his gender, which was misogynistic as fuck of me, but I don't know. I can't tell. Could be a girl too. I don't know. Pick a name, but anyways, that's the story of how I got a badger out of nowhere, which has so many other side parts to it that I was talking about the show. Like, there's like a murder involved in this story but 
we're just going to leave that for another episode, right? Because we well, have a- obviously the badger was murdered before it was stuffed. I mean, yeah, no, just- this involves human murder. It's, it's a great story. Are you, do you want to get into the show? We have yeah. a pretty interesting episode. I, mean, I guess I- it's one of those episodes I think can go a, a few different ways, but it's going to definitely uh, revolve around some, uh, advocacy for the public sector and uh we're gonna hear uh from somebody that we've been wanting to have on the show for a really long time and uh so we're really excited to have her today the forgotten corner is excited to welcome dr wing carly to the show this week wing is a neuroscientist who received her phd from the university of lethbridge home to one of the best neuroscience programs in the world Wing specializes in memories, the forming of new, and the retrieval of old, a skill that might come in handy for her following a run-in with Health Minister Tyler Shandro last year, after she tweeted of his connection to a private health company. Wing is also a strong public education advocate, currently handling communications for Support Our Students Alberta, a group we've featured on the show before. We will hear about Wing's life growing up in rural Alberta and what drives her to do what she does now. Plus, we will, ex- we will explore her transition into activism and why it's never been more important to speak out, no matter who might show up in your driveway. Wing, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you uh, giving us some time on a Saturday morning. And uh, how, how, like, how, we haven't really. I haven't really seen a whole lot of you on Twitter lately. So how have you been the last like several months while COVID's taken over everyone's life? It's been a a ride, you know, just like for everyone else. I think, um, so most of my days are chasing two kids around, uh, six and three, and they're home all the time now. (laughs) Like my daughter's doing homeschooling like pandemic homeschooling with a teacher but it's a lot but I also do the school cases for the COVID tracker so recently it's been a lot of work Um, I mean it's been a lot of work since September 1st when we just decided hey we should just put all these media reports together and then it snowballed and became this huge data project and that's probably why I've just been splitting my time between doing that and not being able to hang out on Twitter as much. Can, can you give us an idea of like what the procedure is like for compiling the school data that you're dealing with? Because it just, I mean, it sounds arduous, but I just want to understand maybe a little bit sort of what's involved. Yeah, so we have several sources uh, that we check every day. I mean, one major one is the school map that the government puts out, but that's not complete because uh, they keep changing their thresholds of what they will tell the public. So a lot of parents around the province actually send us individual case letters uh, that the school sends to the parent community saying, we have a case, we have a few cases. And each of those letters, we you know, cut out the personal info, cut out the names of the staff, and we compile it all. We have a spreadsheet and we keep a running total for each school. And you know, there's now a thousand schools on that list, 1200 schools on that list. And we make sure that they're up to date. So every two weeks, those cases roll off if there's been no additional cases, because that's kind of how we indicate recovery, if you will, even though we know health-wise it might not be the case, but it means that those quarantine children are now back in school for the most part. And it keeps a kind of like a general sense of how widespread cases are within schools in the whole province and what what inspired you to do that because i mean obviously there are gaps in official reporting of covid cases but what tipped you off that this was happening in schools uh we came up with the idea right on september 1st because we saw just a couple of news reports but because mostly local outlets um will put, you know, cases about schools in their communities. We wanted to make it a province-wide tool so that we could see this is not just Lethbridge. This is not just Grand Prairie or the metro regions, right? This is actually in the rural areas and it's a government problem at the provincial level. So it was really that kind of really data-driven, you know, curiosity, but also transparency. We just wanted parents to know this isn't just your school that's going through this and how 
exactly is the spread going on in other communities other than yours? So now I want to backtrack some in your life, maybe all the way to the beginning, because as we do on the Forgotten Corner, we don't uh, let people get away with not giving us their life story. And um, so we'd like to hear about uh, yours a little bit, because you were born in Hong Kong, right, for and lived there about four years before you came. And then you grew up in Stony Plain, Alberta, of all yes. places. So yes. if you could just give the listeners an idea of how that uh, story transpired and I know I know it involved your dad and uh, some stuff that he had done in his life too so yeah so yes correct born in Hong Kong moved here at the age of four uh, in the early 90s and I think we lived in Edmonton for like six months but then my dad tells us you know the way that dads sort of tell their life in pieces as you grow up and you kind of put it all together <laughs> they don't really divulge everything apparently when he was a teenager he went to memorial composite as a teenager in stony for grade 10 to 12 but he lived in hong kong so i think he came as like an international student or whatever existed back in the in his time so then he had made some connections in stony plain and somehow those connections involved like a marriage between our families back in Hong Kong, like one of his older sisters married, like, I don't know, because he had seven siblings. So, you know, you know how that <laughs> right. goes. I don't know who, I've never met my aunts that were older than him because I was too young. Anyways, uh, when he moved back home, he got into banking, had a family. And when my brother was born, he's younger. He's like four years younger. So when he was a baby, he decided, okay, our family, you know, two kids and a wife um, were going to relocate to Canada because that was in advent of the handover, the 1997 handover back to China. And there was a lot of obviously anxiety and fear just among, among the people of Hong Kong of what that would look like. And they already had some ideas. Now in 2021, we know it's kind of, it's been very complex and a lot of, you know, there's been protests and demonstrations. So I think he just wanted us to start a new life in Canada and chose Stony Plain because he had a few family connections and he moved us there. So I grew up there, went to public school, K to 12 and went to the U of A, um, you know, moved there for my undergrad and then did my graduate studies in Lethbridge. So I lived in Lethbridge for seven years. And just recently, after I had my kids, we moved back home to be closer with both our families. So my partner's family and my family are still up here in the capital region. How much memory do you have of living in Hong Kong? Hardly any. And, you know, we know most memories before four are constructed. They're from things that people have told you. And so you adopt those as your own. One memory that my mom keeps telling me is we were in like a public fountain and I almost drowned. And you know, that's the story. She's like, I rescued you. You were almost drowned as a baby. And I mean, that's not the most pleasant memory but it's just one of those things that sticks out. So then now like there is a photo of like us playing around in a fountain in Hong Kong. And I'm like, was that the day? <laughs> but very, very few. Um, and that we haven't actually, I haven't actually had the opportunity to go back. Um, and visit, which is unfortunate and obviously now not a good You've not gone that. once since you came over here? I have not, no. I, at first, I think uh, we were young, when we were younger, we didn't have a ton of money and it's very sure. expensive and it's such a long, it's pretty long flight to bring kids. And my dad's gone back, my parents have gone back, my brother even has gone back, but not me. Can you give us a, a sense of what growing up in Stony Plain was like for you um a, a growing up a woman of color right and in rural alberta did you have was it a welcoming community what was it like for you guys it was it's one of those things that now you process as an adult you you, you know growing up of course it was peaceful you know as much as it can but you know it always was obvious that it was different right like school there's 
problem with my name and people make jokes about it. That was a thing. And it was me and it was another girl from Pakistan. And we kind of became friends because we needed to like, you know, have somebody that understood that journey because it was, you just stick out like a sore thumb. And I think if I, but I think what saved me was like being like the smart kid. I know that's very stereotypical, but it actually, I think was a way of survival, you know, and, and being a girl, I think I had less of the physical um, aggressive, you know, racial aggressions. I think my brother may have had a different journey, um, but on the whole, I didn't, you know, it wasn't as scary. I think out there, it was more like, oh, you're just different, but we love Chinese food. <laughs> and you're like, okay, you know, you get a lot of those comments and then you start to sort of ingrain those as just like, this is my life now, right? Like you don't think much of it till now you're in your 30s. You're like, well, that was not okay. All of that, like adding up was so inappropriate. And you just, you just nod along because what do you do when you're the only Chinese person in the room full of, you know, um, men who are just, you know, more powerful than you and they, they're all making jokes and yeah. So it definitely was an experience that shaped who I am. But now looking back, you're like, wow, a lot of those things I can still carry with me because it wasn't cool. Does it... How does it shape how you, uh, or how's, how has that shaped how maybe you parent your own kids or how, what, what you are preparing them for? Are, are, they're still pretty young. Are they in that, they're probably, well, I mean, your six-year-old sort of, are they in that stage where they need to kind of understand the way the world works a little bit? Do you? Yeah. So my, my kids are biracial. My husband is of Sri Lankan um, descent. And so for sure, it's definitely one of those parenting priorities that you recognize, wow, things aren't always gonna be easy for her or for him, for my boy. And they're gonna, you have to recognize the racial aspect. I think growing up, we never called it that, right? You never named what it would that discrimination or othering was called. And now we know this is racially based and the whole like, we don't see color. Well, like color is a huge part of our life. It's a huge part of her identity and it's not bad, right? When when people are like, we don't see color, it actually makes it makes the problem disappear for those, for those who don't see it and that's great for them. But it's something you have to look at. And for her, you know, I think having representation more now than in the nineties, uh, you know, growing up, there's just more discussion and more awareness of what it's like to have black hair and brown skin and celebrating your heritage and it's not and also being able to understand when that discrimination is happening and what that does to a person right we never had those really in our generation and now we're like working through it collectively but I think for her I parents are understanding more that if things happen at school, then we're able to sort of parse out what it is that's happening. What kind of bullying is this? When you, uh, so you said, you, 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 you know, you sort of talked about kind of relying on being the smart girl growing up and uh, how, how did you decide what you were going to do with that? Like once you got into post-secondary, because neuroscience is, it's, you know, we all know what it is, but we, you don't talk to a lot of people that choose that you think right so what so what was the path and why choose to take what you took and what was the interest there and I think what happened with me is you know people tell you your whole life and it becomes harmful at some point that you're good at everything and then you decide to do none of those things <laughs> and when you don't mature you know in high school I was just like so burnt out over marks I don't like, you know, it's that push, that pressure. And I ended up realizing, wow, universities for a lot more. And I became very like interested in socializing and and I, I was in activism at the student level. And then, so academically, I kind of just wandered for a few years because I was like, I can do anything. 
turns out you can't you have to like focus <laughs> when you're in eventually you university yeah. level you can't just keep taking courses and going into debt forever which was me uh, but I entered university as a drama major in the faculty of arts at the U of A. I loved it. Like, I was in performed theater. I, I was in a theater troupe actually in grade 10, 11. We traveled the province and put on, put on these, uh, you know, like these performances in our extracurricular time. And I loved it. And it really was about the social aspect, right? These extracurriculars and finding your group and finding your skills. But um, after I transferred out of arts, because I thought, actually, I feel like I'm more scientific than arts, uh, the arts sort of platform or mode. And yeah, eventually I landed in a lab because I needed money. But I also enjoyed doing like research at that time of like gathering data. So long story short, I ended up with a psychology and biology double major. And at that point, what do you do with that, <laughs> you know? And, and I graduated in 2009. So even, you know, my friends who were in engineering, that was like a very focused path, you know, thing, there weren't jobs. And I decided to go and apply to graduate school and got my master's and then my PhD. And really, you know, I always had, you know, an intrigue of the brain because it's one of those organs that's still unexplored largely, right? We know mostly how the heart and the lungs function and all of the enzymes and systems that interact, but the brain, they're still trying to decode it because they, you know, want to use it for computers and AI. And so, yeah. Do you have any information as to why we're getting stupider? Sorry, go ahead, Jeremy. Well, I, I was just wondering, as a neuroscientist who uh, is interested in things like AI, are you frightened at all about what the proliferation of AI means for humanity? Are we going to be in a Will Smith movie? I think it's the social forces and the economic forces that scare me, actually. It's what they will be, the application of the knowledge less so of them decoding the brain. I think there's going to be a lot of time left before they actually understand how the brain works. But it's when they find these pieces and they can manipulate um, these systems for, you know, ulterior motives, like controlling humans and all of that. That's what scares me is because there's entities that have interests in things like profit and, you know, making sure that those who don't have continue to not have things, right? Like it's, it's capitalism, it's control and power. Those are the things, the human aspects that I'm worried about. Me I, too. Mean, <laughs> I mean, social media is already uh, doing a lot of, uh, I think, um, a lot of work in, in that regard. And, and, sort of manipulating how our minds work and uh, you know controlling our behavior in, in, in many uh, frightening ways yeah we, that's a great example for sure we could take a turn into some dark places in this podcast today if we really wanted to like absolutely I think there was a confluence of like brain and AI and you know social output we've already seen some of that happening and that will, if unchecked, you know, where will we end up? But I yeah. saw the, there was like an article with the guy that from Facebook that like wrote the original algorithm to start like to basically feed you what you want kind of thing. And he was pretty regretful of this, this guy. Well, they're well. not feeding you what you want. That's the problem. They're feeding you things that will make you more engaged and often. Well, yes, exactly. You mad. You, you, well, you think it's yes, correct, but yeah, we, we the problem is is it is kind of what we want. That's what we. Yeah, uh, Wing, have you read the book uh, "The Age of Surveillance Capitalism"? I have not yet, but it sounds intriguing. Yeah, it's it's great. Uh, best book I read in twenty twenty, I would say. So, speaking of intriguing, let's talk about Tyler Shandro. Can we do that? <laughs> Is he intriguing? No, nothing about this man intrigues me. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. I, I, I think, I think, 
I'm intrigued by like I would love to have Tyler Shandro on the podcast and just like ask him like like, like what how- is it about the human brain wing that makes Tyler Shandro the way he is? I well, I haven't really had an interview with him, so I can't diagnose or offer any professional opinions in in my hat as a neuroscientist. Right. <laughs> Um, so can we, um, let's tell the story to the listeners a little bit. Some people, it was long enough ago, some people might not remember or know about it. Um, the gist is, of course, you had, you found some information that you say was already out there anyway, and you just sort of tweeted it about his part ownership in this private company. And um, it kind of resulted with yet another case of, these guys sort of focusing on some female in Alberta that they, you know, just decide to engage with and end up looking like idiots because they just keep picking people that are so much smarter than them. But can you just tell the story a little bit in your own words? Sure. I think it, it will be one year this weekend. So this is a very timely conversation. Um, Happy Friday, I remember like a terrifying traumatic sort of anniversary so tyler shander was already under the microscope because he you know was being the person that rolled out all of this privatization and started it with fighting with the doctors and i am married to a family doctor so in the pandemic i was bunker down with my husband who was just like feeding me all this information from like the doctors and I'm like, well, you guys need to organize, you know, you need to radicalize and trying to radicalize MDs is like, <laughs> it's like a thing, right? Cause they, they're trained to be like rational and work both, like all of that, you know, work both sides. And I'm like, this is a tyrant government. <laughs> I'm the one in, in his ear, like you, this is not how you deal with authoritarians. So leading up to this weekend, you know, they had rolled out Babylon you know, the, the like online health meeting your doctor. Yeah. The app, but it was all, it's all to undermine the public health system, right? Like the fight with doctors is to use it as a way to, you know, not honor other agreements um, from other health organizations, health worker organizations. So anyways, leading up, I came across and I want, I want to say it was the MD war room and other doctors I followed who posted like vital health, the, the webpage when it was still up, the vital health partners, you know, private insurance, employment insurance brokerage. And the name was the spouse of the current health minister, which I'm not allowed to say apparently, because uh, that's bullying. So, but it's listed under his uh, disclosure. So I looked up the disclosure for the MLA, like all the members have, you know, how many houses they have in Hawaii, uh, how many Tim Hortons they own. So Vital Health, par- uh, Vital Partner, sorry, was listed as one of his, you know, w- forms of revenue. That's what I tweeted. And overnight, you know, it became this like, viral thing even though all that information was sitting out there it just hadn't been collated and put in and framed as the health minister is potentially making a personal buck off of the things he's delisting the things in his role as health minister and that to me as a normal citizen didn't jive because we thought that there were these things in check to protect people who were elected for the public good or public service and yet behind closed doors or openly in this case, being able to change policies that helped his own family profit personally. But what happened after that tweet is that evening, he named me or whoever runs his account, I guess. Tyler Shandro's official Twitter account as health minister of Alberta tagged my handle three times used an Alberta Medical Association statement. I'm not even a medical doctor. The AMA doesn't speak for me, right? Like that didn't even make sense. The AMA statement said, 
you know, some doctors have been conducting themselves uh, as like harass, harassing individuals or just like unseemly conduct online. And I'm like, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not even the doctor. And I don't think I was conducting myself in any way, bullying anybody. I was sharing public information about trying to hold an elected official accountable who had been pulling all of this stuff. Like he was the one actually bullying doctors online and calling them in the middle of the night. I'll go you to know, your take, house. Like getting, and the, that happened the next day, right? <laughs> this all it's fell almost out the of, one year anniversary of that too. So the tweet actually like led to that meme, right? The uncovering of vital partners led to the meme being made. And then the doctor who posted it, whose house, who was graced with the presence of the health minister, uh, that, that's the chain that happened. You started this. You, I, and my apologies I mean, you, you, you can't deny that the man is responsive towards his constituents. He'll be, he'll be there for you. You know, if you yeah. need him. He'll literally be there. <laughs> yeah, like that's come. for you. It, like, and then when that happened, he's doing his job. When that doctor experienced the driveway meet, <laughs> there was a group of doctors discussing it. Like, how are you going to proceed with this? Like, he was so, you know, the I, the story of it is just so jarring. And what do you do in that situation? And luckily, you know, CBC got got hold of it, and and now it's like an infamous story. But how is this man still the health minister? He just he should have lost all of that. You know, if we weren't, if we were had a proper government with proper checks in place, this man should not have been overseeing, and I'm air quoting, this pandemic. 100%. For the past year, he's not someone we can trust, and people have not trusted him, right? So, I mean, here we are. I think he's the only minister in the government that I've gone after more than one time in a column. I think probably a few times and definitely for the driveway incident. He he just about a week ago, didn't he? He was out saying there is no fight with doctors. Never was yeah. like right after the AMA agreement, this tentative deal ratified or ever, which, by the way, if you're listening, is another scenario where I wouldn't. I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that all doctors are happy about this deal. So um, this when sometimes when deals are struck, these tentative deals, uh, that doesn't mean sides are happy. And I, so I would just leave it at that. I'm not a doctor, so I can't say uh, wings married to one. Am I on to something? I think that is a general sentiment and that's doctors have made that sentiment clear. I, anonymously online. Yeah. I think there are other forces we need to consider um, why it wasn't made public. What are they trying to hide? And why is Tyler Shandro trying to change the narrative of what actually occurred in the past year and a half? You know, are they, what are the ulterior motives here, but are they co-opting this agreement for other purposes? Yeah, that's a great question, but maybe we should ask a neuroscientist because do they, are they whitewashing history all the time simply as a gaslighting technique or is there like more to why they like literally just not even pretend they like live in a world where things they've done don't happen. Like they just. Mm -hmm. I think that they have a sense of just who is listening to them. So they know they had a strong base. And because they're the government, there's still this level of authority that is given to, the, to what the government says, right? So in a pandemic, when people are in shock and we still are processing traumas and pain and suffering, this is, a great opportunity for them to change the history while people are not paying attention. And it actually, like from a neuroscientist point of view, this can be very effective because we, you know, our capacity right now for just short-term processing is low, right? Like we are, we have so many things on our mind, but we're still just so tightly wound up waiting for this thing to be over that we have like 
our, our frontal cortex that processes rational thinking and, and, and logic, that's all not functioning as much. So we, it goes down to our feelings, right? Our like what they call the lizard brain. And they appeal to that. They're, they're really easy, short slogans that some of us laugh at, you know, like anything, anything they come up with is always like three words. It's always it a slogan. It doesn't mean anything. It never Jobs, means economy, anything. pipeline. Lives and livelihoods. Like what does that even mean? What are like, <laughs> but it sticks. Strong and free. <laughs> it sticks to, <laughs> to the populace right now because we're going through so much and people want to believe that. Right. So I don't think that's what they know they're doing, but I think it's easy and they want to control the narrative. Do we have, I mean, I probably know the answer to this question, but are we, do we have more of information available to us in any given minute than we can possibly like know how to process? Like to me, like I'm always talking about pick your battles and stuff like that, slow things down. Mo, Mo was kind of uh, frustrated this week that we had just decided to like put coal aside for a little while so we could talk about a kid's cartoon for a week and we just are always jumping around and we try to slow things down but if you think about it things are just coming at you like at a bazillion times a minute that must be by design and by design because they know we can't deal with that absolutely you know and and we've as a human race the evolution of our brain has been for survival and higher level thinking and processing relevant information because otherwise we would get overloaded and we have limited resources. We have limited, you know, blood supply to our brain cells. We can't be putting attention into everywhere. It's just, it just wouldn't be like a good use of resources. So we take what's relevant to us and our survival in that moment and we deal with that. But from a policy angle, if you're trying to control what is you know, being paid attention to uh, by the populace, sure, you would do a million, you know, crazy things to up, you know, like, uh, you know, dismantle different policies and sectors, because we can't all pay attention to things. You have to, especially in this government, you've seen you pick the issue that you care about the most. You may care about other things, but are you going to take days and days to research that so that you know what you're talking about and the history of it all. They have so many staff at their disposal to do that for us. And we've seen their communications army is large and ever evolving. And that you just, you know, they're putting energy and money into making sure we don't take one issue and really, you know, fight for that. Do you think that that is something that I'm not just kind of thinking at on my seat here, but like, is that something that maybe is part of this, the apathy that we see all the time? Like I always talk about apathy in our society as a result of people just having it too easy, but is there an element of like, if you give me too much information to process, I'm going to want no information instead. Like literally I'll turn that off because I can't keep up. Yeah, I think there's a, something be said about the idea of ignorance is bliss because too much information is actually detrimental to your to your mental health if you really you know like take every issue and you take days to mull on it and there's a lot of news out there and so I don't know if always I think some of it is the the fact that it hasn't come across hardships and that's a blessing for some but some have and it's really being able to get the empathy piece, right? That, okay, this may never affect me in my lifetime, but can I do something to help my neighbor, my fellow neighbor who is struggling with this, or even people I don't know that struggle with it, that hypothetical out there person. Can we tap into that empathy so that it's not draining so that people become dysfunctional, right? That they spiral into like a mess that they can't go on with their daily lives and the demands on their life, but can they see themselves in someone else's shoes, right? It's, I think it's really empathy that we need to drive. I feel like you could just start making like 180 bucks an hour right now doing like psychotherapy for people. Cause I'm already soothed just by hearing that just slowed my brain down right perfect. And now I feel uh, nice and calm to shift to the next thing that we want to talk about. 
because you are very, uh, we talked about sort of your active um, activism toward healthcare that was uh, just came out of nowhere. I mean, you were kind of thrust into that, but you're also really quite active in education. And I just want to, you said you were in student activism as well when you were in school. So what made you want to be like, get involved in issues like that? Um, was it just be awareness that there was issues and somebody had to do something? And uh, tell us a little bit about your current activism in with SOS. Yeah, I think the education piece is, is very personal for me. You know, I was an immigrant. I'm a first generation. I came to this country, and understanding that that the the places that a lot of immigrants try to leave have tears, you know, tears of streaming children into certain spaces and there's no crossover. And so my dad will tell you to this day, he came here because he wanted us to have a healthy education, not one that's like pressure. Um, you know, in, in Hong Kong, it was ridiculous how much time children spent doing like rote memory and just it's a lot of pressure to excel because that's the way you could make money for your family, right? So here, the education system is not perfect, but having that public education that's accessible to anybody, no matter your demographic, your economic status, your neighborhood, having a good program that you don't have to pay thousands of dollars for because you have professional parents, that is the equalizer, right? That is how we bring everybody up. And until we bring everybody up, none of us are really excelling, right? Like you're always gonna have the separation and that's not good for society. So personally, I experienced that, right? K to 12 public education. Obviously schools just happened to be my thing and went on, but it's not always that easy for other children who are dealing with things like poverty and discrimination and those are not kids who have voices you know those aren't going to be the kids who get their parents to drive to that private school around the corner because they have parents that can afford that so i think i got into more activism for public k-12 um because of what the ucp was doing and in alberta we've been seeing fragmentation of the school system over, over a few decades, we still have a very strong one, but the fragmentation exists of having lots of different streams um, and that ends up just separating children instead of really like, are we functioning as a society that's cohesive and teaching kids to, to you know, learn in environments that they're exposed to different backgrounds. and. So the UCP have like a mandate that's very clear that they really don't care about public education. Even during a health crisis, they did nothing. Even when people were like, can you help us and just make our schools have smaller classes? Can we have policies that are universal so that teachers don't have to fight for safety? They don't have to fight for PPE or bring their own. They did none of that. And that was part of what propelled me into getting active with Support Our Students. And when the founders moved on, I found myself as communications director. I initially was gonna start the Edmonton chapter because a lot of their initial efforts centered around in Calgary. And, but here we are now, I'm the province-wide comms director. And, and since, since you took on the role, I imagine most of your effort in Support Our Students has been support them through a pandemic? For, for now, yeah, we try not to lose sight of the bigger issues that this pandemic highlights. The pandemic has highlighted so many inequities that we, we knew before, but I don't think the general public saw until now we know not every kid went to school this year. They, they couldn't, right? There were, there were not enough safety procedures in place to ensure that those gaps were bridged for those who lived in high-rise buildings right, who had immunocompromised parents. And because of those, the fact that the UCP was already activating this, um, you know, this agenda, making schools 
not a priority actually ended up leaving more kids out of the system, right? I think the quote is like a huge percentage, I can't think of the number, a huge percentage did not enroll this year. And so what did those kids get to do this year? Are we, are we asking those questions or we're just like, well, we'll see who makes it at the end of this and those are the winners because they got lucky. 100%. I mean, I also believe that kids are pretty like, not that they shouldn't be allowed to in school or whatever, but they're also, I feel like they're pretty resilient in the sense that like if they missed, you know, if they miss a few months of school or something like that, they're going to, they can catch up pretty good. Like there's a lot of people that are worried about like, Oh, our kids are going to be so far behind. I think kids are smarter and their brains are uh, more impressive than we give credit for because um, they learn fast. Right. So I, I feel like when we do get on the other side of this, if we actually invest in education, these kids are going to be fine. And in fact, maybe better off just having such a real world experience in their life to have gone through. That's just, yeah. yeah. Our position has always not, it's not been about the learning and the benchmarking and all it's not been about the academics it's been about highlighting the, the inequalities in our system that's exacerbated by the pandemic I think it can be very dangerous to be like we need to push the kids into achieving again that achievement piece is actually quite capitalistic with an un, the undertone right it's not these kids have been surviving let's let them survive and give them the tools to survive and school is more than just marks. It's more than just output and utility, right? And that's, that leads us into what I think the UCP really sees for the school system is how do we grade kids, right? Even in, in post-secondary. If your institution performs, then you get money. And we're trying to get away from that. You know, We think that schools should be community hubs right? And giving resources to all that. But the output and utility piece is really, it's actually detrimental. If you pressure children to excel more than their peers, that's competition. And that's not healthy. And the performance-based aspect of like the pro-secondaries too, like there's more to it than just like, oh, if they get good grades or whatever, like some of this performance is if you perform at making productive laborers, right? Like if you perform at getting people into the workforce in these specific sectors, we'll, we'll give you money. And their, their curriculum at, at from K to 12 that they, that they want to do and what they're trying to do to post-secondary education. It's like, if you feel like you're like, just like a number that is supposed to go and like churn the machine along. Like I can't, I don't have anything else to tell you anymore. Like, of course that's how it feels because we are treated like just machines, parts of a machine. It's unbelievable to me. Yeah, that really, they're not even ashamed about it, right? Like they're not trying to hide that output utility, basically a factory, uh, right? A factory aspect of schooling and they're completely missing the innovation, discovery, you know, the critical thinking aspect, lifelong learning. None of those things appeared in the minister's order uh, that they were trying to, um, you know, they got parents to come to this engagement and they're like, what do you think about this like ministerial order for the curriculum? And it was all basically like our society will be workers. We will make money for, you know, our employers and it's so, it's sad that like the U of A was recently awarded a Nobel prize because of being able to do scientific exploration. Do you think Nobel prizes just happen overnight? No, it takes years of like exploring and failing and okay, that didn't work. We have to change our research. Like that maybe to people on the outside just seems like you're wandering around in the desert, but that research is trying to ask questions meaningfully and think about them and come up with solutions and it doesn't always work so winning a nobel prize getting defunded in the same year u of a well, Alberta. the from what i saw and i'm sure you can correct me if i'm wrong but of the 90 some million or whatever was the whatever how much money it was that was coming out of post-secondary education like 50 percent of the cuts were the u of a alone 
And it's a huge school. I believe the total was like 30% of all post-secondary students in Alberta attend the U of A. So it's a very large school, but it still took on 50% of the cuts, which is almost double its share. And I use those that term loosely and with air quotes because the, the, the obvious answer is none of these schools should be getting funding cuts from the government. There should, there's no share of the cuts. Like there's money for everyone that they want to give it to and none for the places where it matters, which is part of our conversation today, right? Because um, you, you're, you're very passionate about healthcare and education. And to me, I like if all you focused on in the world was like health education and like infrastructure, like I would be, that would be better than the way we, that we handle things. Cause to me, if you have an educated, healthy society, they prosper on, they do, they live prosperously because of that. Anyway, the, 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 what they have in their corner to go out into the world and succeed at anything is obviously like infinitely better than if we just let people go at it in this individualistic and churn out workers and whatever, we're not creating, we're not, developing minds we're just we're, we're just creating labor it's disgusting anyways jeremy you have something yeah when you spoke about these post-secondary cuts in the context of scientific research and of course that's that that's very important and it's definitely troubling to see that get cut especially when you know u of a is like a world-class um institution in that regard but I, I've always perceived these cuts, especially tying funding to, um, you know, outcomes, uh, however you define them, to be an assault, uh, particularly on the humanities. Do you share that assessment? Yes, that is a large part of it. And I only I brought up that because of the Nobel Prize that was like in the news. Yes, the humanities I think are always first on the chopping block because there's less tangible um, political capital there, right? Like their politicians and policymakers, I mean, most of them came out of the humanities, which is a bit ironic, uh, but I mean, the humanities include large fields, right? It's not just, I don't know what people think <laughs> of just it's not just the arts, right? There's also the philosophies and the sociology. So these have all become very important just recently. You don't get have science without, without the humanities. I think that they both converge and are necessary because how do you communicate in a society without understanding the social structures? How do you thrive in a society without understanding, you know, language and constructs and ways of thinking. So yeah, for sure. I think there's three granting agencies, one uh, in Canada and one is the, the shirk that I think we'll see some, some struggles of trying to put out grants. And I absolutely support the idea that we need both. You need both very robust programs. And I think at the U of L, I was talking to somebody the other day, the faculty is still faculty of science and arts that I graduated from, unless they've changed in the last couple of years. But that speaks to how important those two are together in, you know, creating a democracy or continuing to protect a democracy. And I mean, what? why do you think there is this targeting of the humanities? Like, I think they're especially vulnerable because they don't have like the big corporate endowments that you see in, you know, some of the more scientific departments, but what, what do you think explains this, this hostility fr from the, the powers that be, especially those who are on the right of the political spectrum towards subjects like history and sociology and, and of course gender studies and race studies well i think our government thinks those are all kooky academic theories that don't actually exist that's a so, direct quote <laughs> yes direct from quote from our province but i think from a neoliberal stance there's no value how do you sell that 
right? What, what is the profit margin on selling history and philosophy and sociology? I think that's what it comes down to. In engineering, you have workers that you can put a value on, right? They end up going into building things you can see and have value, like, like a money value. Um, I think it's the fact that there's a lot of the, the drive for profit is what determines what gets funded. And they don't see the human value and the societal value of humanities because you can't market it or, you know, I guess like ribbon cut a, a, a building, I guess, unless it's like an institution for, for like, I don't even know what I'm starting to say now. You just can't sell it or market these ideas because they're abstract, but ever so important. I find it so infuriating that the government spends so much time during COVID talking about the mental health crisis as they sort of actively work to erase the parts of our education system that might shape people's minds or help them understand the world they live in a little bit better. And I feel like much of our mental health crisis as a society is, well, I, fuck much. All of it stems from this, the way we construct our society, the neoliberal way that we do things to me is just, of course, we're going to have the bulk of our adults, like, unable to sort of navigate the world that we've created for each other and now we're going to make it even worse by taking away the parts that like teach us to think for ourselves and to to understand the world around us and to understand behaviors and and give us the abilities to work on our own behaviors and grow as people and things like that like we're just churning good wanting he wants to churn out dummies but yet says like oh you know we gotta, we gotta lift the restrictions because our mental health is suffering. Like, fuck. I, anyways, it bugs me that they even use that term, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I think they just don't see that. How do we even get to this place as a society? We need to be able to communicate properly and think critically, but what they want is just for people to obey. You know, they'd say personal responsibility, but really it's more like don't care about per, the responsibility to others, right? And that's what you learn in these kooky institutions. Is right. I think when you go through these coming out of Stony Plain and coming into the UVA, it of course is a shock to meet new people who have different experiences from you that are ever so valid. And not being exposed to that, you're gonna think everyone functions like you have the same privilege, privileges like you, the same advantages like you. And that's kind of the bend that comes out of what people call liberal. Like, I'm just gonna circle back to it. It's just having empathy. It's being exposed to those who've had troubles that aren't different from yours, right? And this pandemic has shown some people were unscathed. And in fact, they were oppressed for being at home. <laughs> you know, their rights were persecuted because they couldn't like go to a church with 300 other people when tons of others have managed it somehow. Okay. I hear uh, I hear James Coates or whatever his name is, the pastor from Grace Life. I hear he was featured on Tucker Carlson this week um, as a oh, hell yeah. man that was jailed for preaching the Lord or something like this, you know? Anyway. I will say being, <laughs> having been steeped in culture that's been shaped by Christianity you know I went to youth groups and some of my circle are still from my childhood persecution is like fame you know in some some people not all some people view that as their like religious claim to fame that when you are being told you can't express Christianity which that wasn't even the problem the problem was you broke the law, but it's a moral stance that you can lord over people. 
anyway so that's my side rant about that yeah we i could do there's a couple of side podcasts i could do today and that is definitely one as far as um people that but i also well we won't get into it but kim siever had a really great thread about uh um, why we should actually have more tolerance for religion in a lot of ways than less. I, I, I agree with that in a lot of ways too. But Jeremy, do you have any more questions for the doctor about your brain maybe? Like this is a really good time for maybe you to get like a quick accidental free assessment. Yeah. <laughs> why um, is he like this swing? Yeah, why? I mean... I guess just like what what effect is the uncertainty surrounding everything right now have on people writ large? Like you see people getting, I think are a lot more on edge um, these days and more inclined to lash out and, um, you know, when social media is your main connection to the outside world, uh, that can get a bit tricky. So, like, like, what, what's, what's going on there in people's brains? Well, I think it really comes back to our flight or fight responses on, like, steroids and have been for a long time. So we know stress and cortisol levels, all, we, these have all been studied. They've been high in, in the population because we are stressed out. And also we don't know what the future holds. So we are always on survival mode every day, right? So we're not calm and doing the like, take time to think things through that, you know, are more complicated, complex neocortex. That's the most recent developed part of our brain we are functioning in our like old brain, the brain that was, you know, during, during the, the older times when we just had to fight or fly. And so that's what you see is when people don't have the capacity, the, the mental resources to sit through things because we're primed to, to fight or to escape. And having that prolonged sort of being in that prolonged state will have long-term consequences for sure. We will see, you know, memory problems. We will see intention problems and, you know, and developmentally it'll be interesting. Like, and children for sure are resilient, uh, but in, in older children, it'll be interesting to see in the later studies of how, how they will react to other you know, um, emergencies, you know, things that will they just bring up some past memories that they've encapsulated. Um, so yeah, to, to answer your question is we're all just ready to fight because we've had to fight. We've had to fight to survive in this pandemic. Yeah, I'm, I mean, we could talk about this all day, I'm sure, but um, I would imagine uh, you have uh, not places to be, but uh, things to do, as uh, we all do. So, do you guys um, think that my badger chose fight or flight? Because either way, he was unsuccessful. I'm gonna go with fight. Yeah, I like to think he. I, I like to think <laughs> that he went out like scrapping. Like he didn't just like get hit by a car. Like this guy died fighting for what he believed in, which is a hero. He went out a hero in a blaze of glory. Right. Yeah. Like you're pretty inspiring too, Wing, but like this badger is really like changing the way I I look at the world. More just, head on now. Just I for have a name for him now. I would name him Blaze. Blaze oh of Glory. Oh my God. Blaze Badger. Blaze Badger. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. That. It's done. Do it's it. done. Do it. It's um, done. Yeah. Close friend of the show, uh Blaze uh <laughs> Boomer, um, and oh, yeah, just just uh, for our listeners, you can't see Scott had his like arm around the badger, um, just now, and uh, it was lovely. We're close, like, seriously. I mean, it's if you touched the lizard, that you would realize why the the badger is like a lot cooler to touch than the the lizard's pretty gross. This this is intimate now. I'm just trying to like get a vibe from this guy. Like, look yeah. at him. 
you got to admit, is pretty Very cute. Very handsome. Right? Like, he's a pretty cute badger. We really yeah. got to, yeah, it's too bad our listeners can't see. Think of a nice- going to put a, a picture up on your website. Yeah, well, there, my profile picture is my badger right now on my Twitter account. We'll leave it up for a couple of days. Anyway, um, well, we really want to thank you for coming to the show. I, I think uh, I love episodes like this where we can get into a few different topics and you are involved in a few different things. And so we really appreciate you coming and exploring those. Um, the stuff about why, like, I'd really like to get more into the neuroscience aspect of like the, be- the behavior patterns of people and why we ended up where we are as a society. So we're going to have to bring you back again sometimes and, and do that. But I just want to say thank you for coming on. I think it was a, a really interesting conversation. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I was also surprised how how that took a turn and had, had a lot of things to say because I haven't actually thought about it on a daily basis. But thinking about it more now, like the, the behavior of people, which entire studies can be dedicated to. But in Alberta particularly, that is a conversation for sure waiting to happen. Hundred percent. We 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 can rack your brain about the Alberta brain next time we have you. Um, it's the time in our show where we give a shout out to our patrons who go well and above beyond anything we could ever ask of them. To Nancy Niles, to Chris Derwold, to the Big Red Machine, and to Dave Bonmiller. Really appreciate what you guys do. Thank you so much. To our other patrons, thank you for your support. To our listeners, do us a favor and hit five star review. We'll see you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.